This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Jody Wilson-Pachisnik about high-conflict divorce, attorney management, and the litigation process. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Jody Wilson-Pachisnik. Hi, how are you today? It, I butchered your name, didn't I? Um, Not too badly, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fair if you did. It's totally fair if you did. It's a it's a Ukrainian name, not very common in the U.S. Well, for those that don't know you, you are a former attorney. You are a current post-baccalaureate psychology student. And you are also a high-conflict divorce expert. You can be found at highconflictdivorceexpert.com. And, you know, you're an expert, you're a coach, you're a strategist as well. And I think that's really important for for people to hear today. And you just bring this really unique blend of professional expertise and personal experience to your work as you've gone through this yourself, not just as someone who is a former attorney, but someone who's experienced, you know, post-separation abuse and high-conflict divorce. And today we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about attorney management. You're going to help illuminate the litigation process. But first today, let's start off with what is high-conflict divorce? That is a great question because the term high conflict divorce is bandied about in the family law arena. And I think it means different things to different people. And I actually have a blog post on my website about what is high conflict divorce. Um, because because there's a lot of people that don't like that term at all. Absolutely. High conflict divorce. And they're like, people will say like, this is not high conflict. I'm dealing with an abuser. I'm dealing with coercive control. I'm dealing with someone who has a personality disorder. This isn't high conflict. This goes beyond that in in a lot of ways. So I know there's people out there that might be like, this isn't just high conflict. I don't like that name. But for today's purposes, what is high conflict divorce? 
I think you raise a very important point, and I address that point in my blog that's on my website. And I do understand that many people have issues with the term high conflict divorce because it implies that both parties are engaging in equal levels of conflict or equal levels of animosity. It sort of implies uh, reciprocal abuse, which is another term that many DV advocates, domestic violence advocates, take issue with. Because reciprocal abuse is a very kind of victim-blaming concept. And high-conflict divorce can be seen in that same way. So I explain in my blog, and I'm explaining now, that the way I see high-conflict divorce is that it is a divorce or custody matter, a family law matter that involves at least one very high-conflict person, and in my view, almost always only one very high-conflict person. So out of all of the divorce cases um, that are out there in, in the United States anyway, about 10 to 20 percent of them fall into this realm of, quote, high conflict. And a high conflict case is one where there's a lot of litigation, a lot of fighting. The, the two parents uh, cannot see eye to eye. And it usually drags out for a very long time. It's very ugly. Um, however, out of those cases, I would say that almost every single one of them, probably every single one of them, involves someone with a personality disorder. And that doesn't mean that the person that's on the other side of that is enjoying the conflict or wanting to engage in the conflict. They are often a target of post-separation abuse. They're often a target of litigation abuse. Nevertheless, the case itself gets labeled high conflict in the court system. So regardless of who is at fault, although I do think it's important to parse that out, regardless of who is at fault, they all fall into this category and they're all sort of treated the same way. And it's important to understand how the courts work. Even though you may be involved in one of these, quote, high conflict divorces, and you are the target of post-separation abuse, or you are the target of litigation abuse. Uh, courts will often lump both parties into the same bucket and say, these people can't get along. I don't want to deal with this. They're both bad. I'm going to come up with a, a decision that sort of punishes both of them. The other thing we often see happening in these high-conflict divorce situations is the target of the litigation abuse takes the fall, gets the blame, because the person who is perpetrating this may very well be a narcissist, and narcissists are extremely charming people. They are able to put on the right kind of front to the court. They are able to look good in the eyes of the decision makers, and they engage in what I call provoke and blame. They engage in um, behaviors that are going to be provocative to anyone, behaviors that are going to upset anyone because they're abusive behaviors. And if the target of their abuse reacts in a big way, then they point the finger at their target and say, look how crazy he is, or look how crazy she is. Oh my goodness, she's the problem. 
And it's very hard for courts with just the snippets of information they're getting to parse that out and to see what's happening. And honestly, I think many of them don't even want to. Family law is seen as a ugly, ugly arena. Many judges don't want to practice it. Um, I think they get sort of immune to the personal element of it. I, I think that many family law attorneys do as well. And they stop really thinking about the human element of it. And they just think, oh, this is ugly. Let's put a Band-Aid on it. Let's get rid of it. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, what high-conflict divorce actually is, as, as opposed to the way it's often seen when that term is thrown around very casually. Um, we know that up to 6.2% of the population has narcissistic personality disorder according to experts. So, you know, six in every 100 people have it. It's not that uncommon, actually. And experts estimate that 75% of those people are male, about 25% are female. So if you look at those numbers and then you look at how many divorces end up in this high conflict arena, it all sort of checks out. And these high conflict people, as I call them, aren't just narcissists, they may have other mental health issues. And well, they usually do have a wide variety of other mental health issues. So my clients, when they come to me, very often have a ex-spouse who is diagnosed with various mental health conditions or has never been diagnosed, but it's very clear that that's what's going on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I recently read something that said, um, I'm trying to think of exactly how it was worded, but it was something along the lines of when you've gone through family court, you realize that no matter what the outcome is, the process was the punishment. So when a high conflict person goes through divorce, they usually have a narcissistic injury and they are looking for blood. And they know that no matter what the final outcome is, they can put their former significant other through a living hell by just going through this process. And I think one of the most difficult things that I see my clients struggle with, and I'm going to make this into sort of two parts. One, what what they feel they struggle with, and two, what I think their biggest struggle is. My clients tell me that the hardest thing for them is that nobody understands. And I get that. I've been there. I went through a high-conflict divorce myself. Many, many people around me did not understand the, what I would call the horrors of what I was being put through. If you've never experienced it, it's very hard to fathom it. And I think anyone who's even in a relationship 
with a high conflict person or a narcissist um, would say, unless you've been there, it's very hard to understand what it's like. Because narcissists do things that no one else would think to do. They do things that would blow your mind. And when you tell people about it, people have a hard time believing it. They think nobody really does that. No one acts like that. What are you talking about? Um, So that's what my clients really struggle with is nobody understands what I'm going through. And then what I see as a key struggle of theirs that I try to help them get past is the struggle of accepting who their former partner is, fully, wholly accepting that. They are often caught up in a mental sort of game of thinking, this person might change. Or if I only impress upon him or her how much they're hurting me and the children, they'll modify their behavior. Or how can they not see how hurtful they're being? These are the questions that are going through my client's head. And those questions are indicative of a fundamental misunderstanding of what narcissists are and how they think. And the sooner my clients can completely accept what they're dealing with, the sooner they heal and the better their process becomes and the more calm and the less triggered they become. So when it comes to lawyers, getting a lawyer and communicating with your lawyer, you know, that is your first process in that relationship and the trust that can go on there feeling heard by your lawyer. You know, many people probably go through this process where they feel like their lawyer didn't do much for them or didn't represent them in the way that they wanted, didn't hear them. So how do you go about communicating with your lawyer? And within these cases, for lawyers who might be listening to this show, is there an extra special type of care that a client needs that they don't currently provide? Because obviously this is attorney client and not therapist client. But in this circumstance, where does compassion come into play and having a lawyer be like, hey, like this is a little bit bigger. This needs a little bit more care. I can be a little bit more compassionate than I'm being. Obviously, lawyers charge a lot of money and you're dealing with like, you know, where is that line of this person is a client, this person is a human being, and this person deserves a little bit more than what I might be giving specifically for this case and, and extra time? I know that's a weird or long question, but um, is there a way to even answer that? I think there is. And that is a multi-part question and there are various facets to it. A few things I would say, first addressing lawyers and what lawyers could do differently. 
And I'll pause to say that I am not sure that all family law attorneys want to do anything differently. (laughs) There are many family law attorneys out there who don't even want to deal with cases like this. They don't like the, quote, high conflict cases. They um, don't have mental health knowledge and they don't want mental health knowledge. So one of the first steps for the client is finding the right attorney, finding an attorney who gets it or is willing to get it. But going back to what attorneys can do differently, I think they overlook what I call deskside manner. You know, we talk about doctors having bedside manner. Many attorneys have very poor deskside manner. And no, they aren't therapists. And I don't think their clients are expecting them to be therapists. But a little bit of empathy goes a long way. So I myself have had several different attorneys over the course of my whole family law matter. The ones that worked for me the best were the ones that could acknowledge what I was going through while also helping me with my case. So there are some attorneys out there that want to ignore and disregard the deeply painful experience their clients are going through and ignore and disregard the emotional abuse that these clients are going through and just stick to this is the law. This is what I can do for you. This is what I can't do for you. A few words of empathy, I think, would go a long way to smoothing out that relationship, the client attorney relationship. Because when people are going through a very difficult emotional time, and they mention it to someone that they believe is going to care, and that person doesn't respond, usually that escalates the feelings of trauma. And that escalates the emotionality of the client. And I know these attorneys often don't enjoy dealing with the highly emotional side of their clients. However, by ignoring the difficulty, they're only escalating the emotionality of their clients. So I think by just saying, that sounds really hard, that sounds really tough, I'm really sorry you're going through that, that must feel awful to you. Just a few of those small statements acknowledging their client's feelings, I think that could really help. The other advice I would give the attorneys who are in family law is to spend some time learning about mental health. And I was one of those people 15 years ago, if someone had come to me and said, my spouse is a narcissist, I would have thought they were talking about someone who looks in the mirror a lot, maybe thinks they're smarter than everyone. I had no idea there was something called narcissistic personality disorder. And when I learned of this completely by accident, actually, and came upon the definition of it in the uh, diagnostics and statistics manual and, and read the traits of a narcissist, bells went off in my head. And I thought, oh my goodness, I know at least one person who fits that very well. And it really changed the way I saw what I was dealing with. I think if lawyers had even basic knowledge about personality disorders and abnormal psychology, it would really help. 
not only because then when their clients come to them and say, I think my ex is a narcissist, they would have some baseline level of understanding whether that may be the case or not the case. And they would know that that is a thing that can happen. Now, I'm sure they hear all the time. In fact, I know they hear all the time. My ex is a narcissist. And not everyone is correct that their ex is a narcissist. But they might be. And it's worth an attorney actually understanding and knowing what that might mean and then what kind of special measures you would take in the case if that were were true. You asked about that. You said, how could the attorneys possibly treat the case differently? Well, they need to understand that some of the old tried and true methods don't work with narcissists. For example, in family law, attorneys are encouraged by the courts to push mediation. I have that happen to me. My attorneys kept saying, we should mediate. Opposing counsel kept pushing mediation. Mediation does not work with high-conflict people. It rarely, rarely works. The only time mediation is going to work with a high-conflict person is if the person on the other side has a lot of leverage for some reason, which is not always easy to get or have. But if you're just going into a regular mediation without a large amount of leverage, what a narcissistic person will do is they will go in with a list of things they want, a list of demands, and they want all of those. And they won't agree to anything unless they get every single one of their demands met. So it's a my way or the highway situation, which doesn't work in mediation. Lawyers will tell you that a good mediation will result in a settlement, and it results in a settlement where both parties are sort of unhappy. That's when you know you've reached a compromise, when both parties are sort of unhappy walking out of the room. Well, a narcissist doesn't want to be unhappy at all walking out of the room. Not only do they want all 10 demands uh, to be given into, but they want to extract their pound of flesh on the way out. They want to make sure that the person on the other side is paying a price. And that's just not conducive to mediation. Can I make a, a counter argument here? Are you ready? Sure. That even if they do get everything that they want, that they'll still be unhappy. Yes. So both parties will still be unhappy, even though <laughs> that person did get all what they wanted anyway. That's true. That is true. They will become unhappy, at least eventually. It's a matter of hours or days before they want something bigger, better, more, because they are perpetually feeling like a victim. I've been in more than one mediation where the narcissist walked in with 10 things that they wanted and demanded all these things. And their opposing party said, fine, I'll give it to you. Because the opposing party, the target of their abuse, just wanted out. They just wanted to get away from this person. So they acquiesced in all the demands. The narcissist then says, oh, wait, but I want this too and this as well. And they add to their demands. So it's not, they're not even happy with the demands they initially made. That's not even enough for them. That's what I mean by even if you gave them everything, 
they want to extract a pound of flesh on the way out. They want to make sure that they have squashed you under their heel and squished it around a little bit, you know, poured the salt in the wounds. It's just not worth spending a lot of time meeting mediating with narcissists. You might have to. The court might say you need to mediate. So you go and you do some perfunctory mediation and you check that box and you move on. But going into it, thinking you're going to come away with a satisfactory agreement for your children is usually a pipe dream. It's probably not going to happen. The other thing that attorneys could do to help themselves is learn how to negotiate specifically with high conflict people. And there's a great book out there. I recommend it to all of my clients. And the author, Chris Boss, probably should pay me a bunch of royalties because I make all my clients read his book. So Chris Moss is a former FBI negotiator, and he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. Because he's an FBI negotiator, he had to negotiate with psychopaths, people who would kidnap other people and threaten to murder them, for example. So he understands how to negotiate with narcissists, high conflict people. Every attorney should read his book and practice his methods. I'm not sure that a lot of divorce attorneys have spent that much time studying negotiation skills, and that would be helpful for them. And when it comes to you helping um, client your clients communicate with lawyers, how do you go about that communication process? Great question. And I do a lot of this. And sometimes I even ghostwrite emails for my clients to their attorneys because oftentimes my clients provide more information than their attorneys need. They put emotional things in their email that don't help the attorney do his or her job. They don't understand how busy attorneys are, how attorneys triage their work or categorize their work throughout the week. They also tend to not, my clients tend to not understand the schedules of attorneys. And if an attorney doesn't respond to you at all for two days, it could be that they're in trial or they're in mediation or depositions and they can't respond to you. So I help manage my clients' expectations and then I help them package the information and questions in a way that their attorneys can access that information and best use it in their case. So when it comes to the, I'm going to use the term storytelling aspect of things, and I think we've discussed this briefly the last time we talked, offline, and how I started to feel that storytelling ability, trauma, and um, clarity can get in the way of telling your story effectively to a lawyer, to anyone that can be helpful, and in court. Um. So people will listen to you and to be um, as efficient as possible and to really make 
a life for everyone else around them a little bit easier. And I know that's very difficult to do, especially when there's a lot of trauma. And I've spoken to a lot of people who've gone through a lot of trauma doing the show. And it is, I've heard a lot of different ways people can tell stories. And what we try to do here is forever to get it to a point where it's as clear as possible for everyone to hear and, and understand. And there's, I've, I have my, I, I'm not a trauma expert in any sort of way, but there is a specific way people talk when they've gone through a lot of trauma where they have memories while they're talking and they can, once that memory hits, they can go backwards in time to wherever that memory is and they keep on going from that memory and then they go from, they hit another memory and then boom, and they hit another memory and boom. Then eventually they do get around to the ending, the first point we we're talking about, but it's like a tangled wire and being able to communicate efficiently with a lawyer, I would assume would keep your cost down. I would hope maybe. I might be I might be out of left field here um, with these thoughts and, and beliefs in that I'm living in a fantasy world. But then in court, being able to be that clear for people to understand and being efficient helps you kind of stay on this track. And you doing what you're doing as your profession where, yes, you're helping people with the divorce and the attorney and communication, but as a whole, to get everyone kind of in shape if they have to go to court, how would you go about or what are the most effective ways to kind of get someone to be able to communicate more efficiently? And does that also involve like, obviously we need trauma therapy and being like, hey, if we spend money here, that might bring our cost down over here. It might seem like a big cost, but that actually might help you in these other ways. So I know, again, as I said before, I've said a lot there and thrown on your plate, but how far off am I? And is this something that is needed? You're right on target. And it's absolutely needed. This is, I would say, the first step oftentimes in helping my clients. I recently got a new client, for example, who during our very first phone call was all over the map with what she was telling me because she was in crisis. So it was hard for even me to fully understand what was going on in her case. Thankfully, I've had so much experience with this that I know how to ask the right questions to lead them to tell me their story so that I can understand it. But while I'm listening to them telling the story through this filter of trauma and crisis, I can't help but think that if this is how they're talking to their attorney, that's probably not going very well. And they're racking up attorney fees spilling their feelings to someone who can't help them with their feelings because attorneys can't help you with your feelings. And the more inessential, 
the more non-essential information you give your attorney, the more it's costing you to deal with them. So one of the questions I always ask my clients is, are you in therapy? What is your support system? Who do you have around you? What are you doing for self-care right now? What are you doing for exercise? Are you getting outside? Do you meditate? Because all of these facets are going to help calm them down and get them to a place where they can tell their story in a credible way. Not only are there attorneys assessing their credibility when they speak to their attorneys, but of course the court is assessing their credibility also. So getting my clients to a calmer place is going to save them money. Also, helping them understand what is legally relevant and what is not legally relevant is going to help them. A lot of times they're telling the story and they're telling me things that have happened 15 years ago that are probably not relevant to the court at all. Or they're telling me things about the way their partner treated them, which are horrible for sure, but which the court just doesn't have time to care about. So if they're going to impart all that information on their attorney and their attorney is going to read this multi-paragraph email, they're paying that attorney 500 bucks an hour or whatever their attorney's rate is to read things that aren't relevant to the case. So this is another way that I help them to save money is by helping them curate what they say to their attorney, what the information is that they're sharing and what information they hold back and maybe share with their therapist or just share with me. And I work with them on those feelings that they're having around that. Now, the other thing that's very helpful about having a divorce coach like me is they can come to me with their, quote, stupid questions, you know, the sort of questions that you think, oh, I think this might be a stupid question, but I really don't understand. And if you bring it to your attorney, you're paying an attorney's billing rate to answer your, quote, stupid question. I, I think there are no stupid questions. And I understand that litigants in family law are probably dealing with the court system for the first time in their entire lives. They've never been in court. Most people don't ever have contact with the court system. So they don't know what a pretrial conference is. They don't know what a status conference is. They get discovery documents in the mail and they call me and say, what on God's green earth is this? Do I have to answer these questions? Um, I don't think they want to pay an attorney, an attorney's rate, to explain to them that, yes, they have to answer discovery or a pretrial conference is getting ready for trial. So these are the kinds of questions they can bring to me instead of paying their attorney. Similar to questions like, look, my ex just sent me this terrible message. Do I even have to respond? Should I respond? Oftentimes, those are not legal questions. Those are coaching questions. So they save money by having a coach. They save money by having a therapist, by engaging in self-care because they're calming that whole emotional side of it and separating the emotional side out from the legal side, which doesn't adequately address any of the emotional side, I would say. And then the other really important factor here is that when you're dealing with a high conflict person in a divorce, 
it is almost inevitable that they will call you crazy. If I had a dime for every client that was called crazy, I could build a replica of a courthouse using dimes because that's the go-to, especially for women, for female litigants. It harkens back to the days where women were called hysterical and thought to not be as rational as men. It's very easy for these old sexist tropes to be dredged up and placed upon female litigants. So they're called crazy. Well, if they go into court being highly emotional, that's just going to feed the crazy narrative, which is not fair because being emotional does not mean you're crazy. It's probably a normal reaction to a very abnormal situation. It's probably quite normal, actually. But it's easy for a narcissist to capitalize on that and for a narcissist attorney to capitalize on it and say, look, that person, they're so emotional, they're crazy. And there is a double standard in court. We often see that men who become very emotional in court and cry, for example, are seen as passionate, loving fathers who are just caring deeply for their children. Women who cry in court are seen as hysterical and crazy. So it's very important to get a hold of yourself and present your case in a rational, calm fashion and not seem angry. That's the other kiss of death is if you seem angry and again, especially if you're a woman and you seem angry, that is a kiss of death in court. So your question is a perfect question. And I think it's one of the most important aspects of what I do, helping people calm the emotional side of things so that they can be more effective on the legal side of things. So before we go today, you know, we've been talking about court lawyers, you know, all these different things that cost money, but there's, that is for the privileged part of society. So now we have the part of society that cannot afford any of these things that we are talking about at all. How do you help them or how, what are the supports out there that they can go to in this system that is unfair? In, in this sense, when it comes to money, inequality? That's a, that's a very tough question. And to be completely honest, there are not a ton of resources. I will tell you that even in my own experience, my former spouse had a lot more money than I did. I was terrified because he was outspending me. And I was running out of resources. And I talked to two different experts. One was a former custody evaluator, and the other was an attorney from another state who had no stake in my situation, who was just offering me his experience and knowledge. Both of them said, if your former spouse has more money than you, you will lose. Walk away, cut a deal walk away. That was devastating to hear. 
absolutely devastating advice. So I sold my house. I sold my house to get money to spend my parental rights. And I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in the last 10 years. Not exaggerating. So when you look at our whole system, I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say that the people with money have a greater advantage. However, that said, I have seen people operate in pro se, that means representing yourself, who've done a pretty phenomenal job, or they have done most of the work themselves and then hired an attorney only to do the court type stuff. So that's another way you can save a lot of money. In some counties and jurisdictions, you can apply to legal aid and you can get some help through legal aid. Um, I would say, though, even if you don't go the court route and you try to settle because you can't afford an attorney, there are some tricks that can help you settle. One is knowing how to negotiate. The other is understanding who you're dealing with. Another one is just having perspective on the whole big picture. I think many people who are dealing with a narcissist or any other high conflict or personality disordered person feel like if their children spend any time at all with that person, that is an absolute disaster. And that's going to ruin their children's entire life. And having done this for a long time, I understand the perspective uh, of what actually happens over the long period of time with these kinds of high-conflict people. And the outlook is not always as horrible as you think it's going to be, unless they are sexual abusing or physically abusing your children. That's a whole different story. But the narcissistic abuse can be counteracted by the other solid parent. I'm not saying it's ideal. No one wants their kids to deal with that, but your kids can grow up and be okay. So you might be able to negotiate a deal with this high conflict person where they do see the children some, but you also are in the children's lives so you can counteract the impact of that high conflict person. Beyond that, there honestly are not a lot of fantastic resources for people that don't have any money out there in the system. I can certainly help people understand the entire lay of the land of what's going on litigation-wise and explain concepts to them and options to them that uh, they wouldn't otherwise know about. For example, someone who doesn't have an attorney doesn't even know what discovery is. Uh, I can tell them what discovery is and explain to them how discovery works. Just some basic things like that that they wouldn't otherwise know about. I also help people understand how to research the law themselves. So it's really, interestingly, not that hard to find answers, um, legal answers out there. Back when I became a lawyer over 20 years ago, you had to subscribe to these special databases to get case law, for example. Now it's all free on the internet. So I actually have a uh, sort of cheat sheet that I give to my clients about how to find legal resources themselves, how to read the statutory laws themselves, 
how to look up case law themselves. So if you are representing yourself, you can try to do a lot of this yourself. I'm not going to say that you're not at a huge disadvantage because you are, but at least I can help them figure out how to find answers, how to conduct research, how to learn what's going on in their case. Many people don't even understand how they can figure out what the next step in their case is, what's going to happen next. So that's something I can help people with as well. So, you know, we're going to have you back next week. We're going to talk a little bit more about um, the divorce, but also really communication, I think, with your ex specifically, how to catch them in, in things like that. But, you know, with everything that you said today, do you have any, you know, last words, words of wisdom for everyone who's listening um, about everything that we've talked about today? One of the things that I always tell my clients is that living with a narcissist in your life, which you will be doing if you co-parent, you don't ever get away from this person. It's like living with a chronic disease. It is not the end of the world, but it kind of really sucks, but you can learn to manage it. So it wouldn't be unlike living with type 1 diabetes. It's not a death sentence. You take your medication, you eat right, you learn to live with it. That's what I help people with, with respect to dealing with co-parenting with a narcissist, is how you can manage the situation, still live a really happy and full life. And I want people to be hopeful. You can live a fantastic life, even though you're dealing with this high conflict person. And I just encourage people to... Think about what they can do to go ahead and move on with their life and create their best life despite having this sort of thorn in their side that they can't get rid of. Well, Jody Wilson Pachisnik, thank you for being here with us today. You can be reached at highconflictdivorceexpert.com. That will be in the show notes if anyone wants to reach out to Jody just go to the website and reach out to her through there just a, but just a really big thank you for all the information that you provided for provided for for our community but as well as lawyers who might be listening as well just a really big uh, thank you for being here with us today thank you brandon well thank you once again Jody for being here with us And if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions. And either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And we have a support group at NarcissistApocalypse.com. So if you need support, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a support group button. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network where you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday nights, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. You can make great friends on there as well. So if you need support, join our support group today. 
And if you need even more support, please visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in, domesticshelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource. So if you need extra support, go to domesticshelters.org. And we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com, and Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported organization, charitable organization as well. It is currently only in Canada, but they're looking to expand to the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence and coercive control. They get all of your things out of your home, into storage, all of your belongings into storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It's a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Jody, we hope you have a good night.